0: But we are looking this morning at the Sixth Commandment, and, uh, and we're going to look at a couple passages. We're going to look at Exodus 20, 13, where it's given, and if you have a Bibles, I'd really invite you to turn to Matthew 5, 21 through 22. Uh, it's on page 810 in the Pew Bible, and we're going to spend a lot of time there. That's a little longer passage. But let me start by reading the passages we're going to spend most our time on this morning. Exodus 20, first of all, simplest statement, you shall not murder. That's pretty direct. And then Jesus expounded on it in Matthew chapter five. He said this, you heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of, fi- hell of fire. May God bless the reading of this word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege that we do have to come together this morning, Father, to be able to spend this time diving in your word. Thank you for the truths that are here. Father, truths that are foundational to life, to a culture. Father, truths that you graciously give us. And Father, where you challenge us in grace, even where we have fallen short. I pray that you would now use me, speak through me in spite of me. Father, help each one of us to have hearts that are open to hear and to respond. And Father, even if there are There's a need for a miracle here today. Father, that you have done the miracles, you can raise the dead. And Father, there may be some miracles that you need to do here today of healing. And I pray that you'd prepare our hearts for what you want to do even this morning. I pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. As a child, Corey ten Boom was raised in Holland with a strong, part of a strong Christian family. After Nazi Germany invaded her and occupied her country in 1940, it wasn't long before her family saw that the Nazis were rounding up Jews and they assumed it was likely to put them to fate or to death. And as they looked at that, they felt as an expression of their conviction of, of what the Bible called them to, that they would, should be involved of standing against that, not only seeking to take German or Jewish families that were uh, at risk and hiding them, but then helping them be able to ideally escape from the occupied land. So what they did is they built a small room, kind of a hidden room, and back in one of the rooms in the house, and any time there was a threat of a search, they would ring a bell and all the, you know, the Jews that were there would go and hide that room, and it worked quite well. They were never discovered. But one day, there was a, someone who was a, probably a friend who knew about it and reported them to the uh, German authorities. As a result, the whole Ten Boom family was arrested. They were separated and sent to various concentration camps Corey and her sister Betsy were both sent to Ravensbrück, which had in what had been Poland. And uh, Betsy would die there in that concentration camp from starvation and mistreatment. Uh, in fact, Corey was the only one of her family that survived the war. And even for that, it was really more of a miraculous movement of God that she survived. And the years after the war, God used her then in a powerful way to speak to people and and uh, help people recover from the emotional and spiritual scars they'd experienced through the war. Uh, She later in her life even took that, wrote her story into a well-known book, The Hiding Place. It became a bestseller for a number of years. And part of her story is about her understanding of what the Sixth Commandment teaches. You see, her family looked at it and said, it not only teaches that we shouldn't kill But if we really understand it, it means that as followers of Christ, we have the obligation to seek to protect those whose lives are at risk. And and so God used her in a powerful way. But even through that, God was not done teaching her. After the war, God continued to teach her about what this all meant in sometimes a very convicting way. Let me read from what she wrote about one of those events. It was a church in Munich that I saw him a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947, and I'd come from Holland to defeat Germany with a message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the crowd. One moment I saw the brown overcoat and the brown felt hat. The next I saw the blue uniform, the visored cap with his skull and crossbones. It came back in a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the room. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, sharp ribs between beneath her parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland and this man had been a guard at the Ravensbrück Concentration Camp where we had been sent. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, I realized he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I have done, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein and his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had to be forgiven every day, and I could not. That's he had died in that place. Could he now erase her slow and terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there handheld out. But to me, it seemed as it were hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. And we're studying the Ten Commandments this morning, and as we read it just a few moments ago, we look at it and we say, it seems to be pretty direct, doesn't it? That uh, we're studying each of the commandments, and, and we're seeing that with each one, we can look at what it seems to say, the simplistic view, and, and stop there. But we're also seeing that each week we can go far deeper and we can see a principle that speaks to our culture. We can see not only that principle, but we can look deep into our own heart, and we can realize that in each case, God is speaking about a, a concept, a principle that he wants to speak to our heart as well. You see, God isn't just concerned about our behavior. He's not concerned just about what we do. He's also concerned about our character, about who we are. And so with each one of these commandments, we're trying to go beyond just the action, and we're trying to look at what is the heart attitude that God is calling us to. Now, at first, even with this one, it seems so straightforward that out of all the commandments, we would think, okay, this is the one everybody in all cultures agrees on, and we all know what it means. We read it just a few moments ago, and how could you be more direct than you shall not murder? That's about as direct as you can get. You know, it's interesting is when you hear people talk about this, you realize that there is actually a lot of confusion about what seems to be a pretty clear command. In fact, think about it. I hear some people talk about it, and they'll talk about how, well, because it says don't kill, well, therefore, they're opposed to any kind of war. Some people to the degree that even if we are uh, invaded, you know, we shouldn't fight, because if we fight, well, that's killing, and the Bible is against that. and So any war, any army is wrong. You know, some will argue, well, is that against the death penalty? And others will, will look at not only that, but they'll go a step further and they'll say, well, this is a, a justification for a vegetarian lifestyle. Not just because of the health benefits that they see in it, but specifically they'll argue the morality of the Sixth Commandment. They'll argue that if you eat chicken, if you have a hamburger, to do that you have to kill an animal, and therefore you're breaking the Sixth Commandment. And um, now some people would say, no, they don't really think that. Well, all you have to do, it doesn't, it's not hard to find this, go and find all kinds of people that are arguing for uh, veganism and things like that, and you'll see all kinds of posters where you'll have something like this, you know, a pig, what part of thou shalt kill, don't, you don't understand. And there's all kinds of things here that they'll say, um, no, it's wrong to kill. Now, what I find very interesting is that it's often those who will argue that it's wrong to kill an animal and that are arguing for vegetarianism who are often the very same people that will argue that it's okay to, for a mother to kill a baby in their womb because somehow an unborn baby is of less value, is less alive than a cow and is worthy of less protection. Now, how do you work that out? And we have to ask, is abortion of an unborn baby a violation of the Sixth Commandment? Should it be a sin as murder? Is it, is it ever acceptable? How do we understand these things? And I want you to see that as we talk about these things, it's. It seems really simple, but it's not as easy as it might at first seem. Now, we're going to look at a lot of the why of the commandment. To understand it, we need to understand what is the principle, what is the basis that God is calling us to understand. But let me start by looking at one part of the what that is really important to understand here uh, if we're going to understand what, and it's a big part of the confusion. And the key is when you look at the commandment, many of us, when we memorized it, we memorized Thou shalt not kill. And some translations have, don't kill. The, we use ESV, it doesn't use that. It says, you shall not murder. And, and actually, that's actually the word that's used. There's a different word, and there's a difference between the meaning. You see, God could have used the very broad word for kill. And, and kill means to, to end a life, to take a life. And it's a, again, it's a very broad word. Now, if that was the word that God used, that it could, we could interpret it to speak a, bunch of whole, a whole bunch of things. That's where people say, well, it's always wrong in war that's wrong. Or, or for those in law enforcement, it would be wrong to draw their weapon and, or in self-defense. Or some people, again, arguing, well, it's wrong to kill an animal. But what we need to see is that's not the word that God chose to use. He could have, but he didn't. Instead, he chose a more specific word, a very narrow word that had a very narrow meaning that is better translated murder. And specifically, it means the intentional and unlawful taking of a human life. So what that means is that when you have a, a legal war, okay, well, that's not, that's not murder uh, when people are involved in war, when they're in killing, or law enforcement. It's definitely not murder when we're talking about killing an animal. That's not what's being um, prohibited here. So you've got to understand, okay, it's about murder. And when you get into what the Bible teaches on this commandment, what you find is that it's not only the what, but the why helps explain the what. So why is it that murder is wrong? Why is it wrong to take a human life? And the ultimate grounds for the command is, the, is understanding the value of human life. See, the basic truth is this, that God is our creator. He is the source of all truth, and he is the source of all life. And the Bible tells us that when God created the world, that he spoke everything into existence. And he goes through, if you go to Genesis 1 and 2, and he speaks everything into existence. And at the end of the sixth day, he stops, and he does the special work of creation. He takes man, and we're told that he forms man out of the crust of the ground, and he created him in his own image. And then he breathed into man, and he breathed an eternal soul. So there are things about mankind that are different than any other in creation. Nothing else is created in the image of God like man. Nothing else has a human soul like man. And so therefore, what we realize is that humanity is special. It's unique. Human, the human life is of tra- tremendous value because of, of the way that we're created, because of the value that God has placed on us. So it's this is a huge issue. Because if you want to understand a lot of the confusion, especially for those that deny God, all you need to do is to say, okay, what, how, what's their understanding of humanity? Where does humanity come from? See, from the perspective of much of our world, well, God didn't create us, we're the result of evolutionary process. We're the result of you know, time and matter and chance and a whole bunch of luck, and, and, and it just so happened that we are the accidental result of that process. And, and as a result, in humanity, we aren't created special, we don't have any purpose in life. Um, and In reality, if you think about it, humanity is little or no different than the rest of biological life. How are we different than a, than a tree? How are we different than a bug? How are we different than an animal? Where the, process of the a result of the same process, we're just a little bit more involved than they are. And here's what you've got to realize, a lot of times you'll see people that will be kind of the extreme event, environmentalists and it will look at it, you're like, well, why are they making such a big deal about protecting trees or about protecting animals? And, and it seems that they're raising those things up to an unhealthy level. And you say, how do I understand that? Here's what's happening. They've come to realize that their system of belief demands the conclusion that people can be no more valuable than a plant or an animal. So they have to lift those things up. They have to make them valuable, because that's the only way that humanity has any value. And the real result isn't that they're lifting up. It may seem to be, well, you're trying to make animals so special. You're trying to, the real result isn't how they're, much they're lifting up the, uh, in the environment or the animal kingdom. The real result is they're tearing down humanity. And they're saying humanity is really little no, or no more valuable than a plant or a bug or a cow. Now, that's at the core of so many of the disagreements in our culture on these life issues today. You know, everything from, you know, abortion and euthanasia and all these different things. And we've got to look at it. We're talking about not only that we place value on life, but why? Why is life valuable? Because if you don't agree about where life comes from and where its value is, we're going to place a radically different understanding on the value of life. See, we realize that from our perspective, from a Christian perspective, God has created each person. Each person has tremendous value, tremendous worth. They have an eternal soul. Each life is worth protecting and honoring. Now, there's many in our culture that because of, especially if you have this view of an evolutionary process of life, you look at life and life isn't that valuable. You see, it it grows from, the low view of life grows from where we come from. Man's significance is ultimately rooted not in, in what God has placed in them, but okay, what do they bring to the culture? Are they loved? Do they, are they productive? Are they, do they add something? So for example, that's where you see now in a debate where, well, a woman is pregnant. Well, she doesn't want the child. I don't think I'll like the, love the child that much. And, and well, therefore, I don't think anything of ending the pregnancy because there's no intrinsic value. This is an unborn child. It doesn't add anything. It's just going to take for an extended period of time. It's just a lump of cells. It's an underdeveloped lump of cells. There's not really a substantial difference between a bug that is less developed uh, evolutionary perspective and a human from that perspective. Or let's take the, the this, you know, debate about death with dignity. And in many states, there, have been, you know, there's, there are things on the ballots and are being passed in multiple states of, of saying that we you know, need to have death with dignity, and that's seen as a good thing. Well, you have an elderly person, well, they're dying and they're in pain. And from that worldly perspective, you look at that and you say, well, here's somebody that doesn't really add much to the culture, but they cost a great deal. There's no intrinsic value in the soul. So therefore we conclude that, well, hastening the death, well, it's going to save, it's gonna help the culture. And not only that, they're in pain. And we think about a dog, and if a dog is in pain, well, we out of sympathy, we put them out of their misery quickly because that's an act of love towards a dog. And if the human is no different than a dog, then if you're going to do that with a the dog, then why shouldn't we do that with a human? My friends, when we see these, these arguments, we've got to understand what they're based on. We've got to see it from a Christian perspective. Because our culture has lost sight of the intrinsic value of life, it's not only leading to these kind of problems, But you know, that just they were talking about in the last year that the murder rate across their country went up 30% in one year. Now, you can look at that and you can say, well, it's because of this political issue or this going on. Well, the fact of the matter is, I think more than anything else, the core root of it is that we have a culture where we're telling people don't matter. We're products of evolution. There is no intrinsic value in life, so then should we be surprised when people think lightly of taking another human life? My friends, this is a huge problem. So we've got to think biblically on this. Now, even in this, they might be saying, okay, well, I understand that, and I think I see that it's important and, and, um, and, and how we need to apply this out. But, but in that, I, I understand, okay, there's a difference between killing and murder, and I understand that. And, but I've never murdered anyone. I've never attempted to murder anyone. You know, I, I think I've got this one down pretty well. You know, out of all the previous commandments, every time we come to them, there's something convicting about it. And, um, but this one... You know, I'm, I'm good. You know, I'm not, I'm not worrying about murdering somebody. Now, before we move on too quickly, let's go back to what Jesus says about it. This, we're going to go back, if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew 5. Look what Jesus said, because Jesus takes this commandment and he said, okay, it's not just about you're good if you have never killed anybody physically. He, he says there's a heart attitude behind murder. And he goes to this heart issue. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, look at what Jesus said. Verse 21, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to hell of fire. Now here you have Jesus commenting on the sixth commandment, and he's not saying, well, you know, you've heard this said and it's wrong. What I think he's saying is the, word, the, the feeling of it is you've heard, you've heard God say. You have understood God to say, you shall not murder. And like if you haven't murdered, you're good. But then he comes back and he says, okay, but I'm going to tell you the real deeper meaning here. Not just the action, but I'm going to speak to the heart issue. Now, now, Jesus has the right to say this because who is he? He's God. And he's the one that said, I said this way back when. Now, let me explain to you a little more deeply what I mean by it. You see, he comes and he speaks to the heart, and he's saying, you know, you might think, well, because you've never killed anyone or, you know, i close to killing another person, I've got this down. But it's not just about the extreme action of murder. There's an attitude of the heart that is behind murder. Jesus is saying, when you look at every action, everything that we do always flows from who we are. We do what, you know, is an expression of who we are. And he said, okay, what, what is the cause of murder? What's well, undealt with anger? And, and anger is like a cancer that if you let it grow in time, in time it's going to consume you and it's going to lead to radical action. And so you become so angry and then at that point in time, you know, that, you know your defenses are down, nothing is there, and boy, the switch can, 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 can flip. But it's not just that. We're going to see that it expresses itself not just in physical action, but in other ways as well. Now, the fact of the matter is, I think for most of us, we'd say, well, murder is a huge issue. Of course, it's terrible. Uh, but anger, we don't see it as that big of an issue. See, most of us would admit that we, at times, struggle with some degree of anger. Most of us would admit that we've got someone, I think I've kind of forgiven them, but I kind of hold something against them. And the problem is that oftentimes we live with our anger and resentment so long, we, we feel like we've kept it in check, and we we've kind of see it as normal. It's this, this little thing. It's not a big thing that really has the power to destroy us. But Jesus comes and says, no, it's a huge issue. It's a cancer, and it does have the power to destroy you. It's at the root of, of what, it's, it's what murder is all about. It's the heart of murder. It's a destructive force that needs to be recognized and taken on and defeated. It's a, there's a power in our heart. And in fact, if you want to understand the power let me go to another passage. Let, let's look at what Paul says about this in Ephesians. And, and he talks about the, the impact, the power that unresolved anger has. Ephesians chapter six, uh, 4, starting in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, at first, it seems comforting and realistic. You know, it says, you know, you know there are going to be moments you're angry. You know, if any of us said, you're never angry. No, all of us are angry. We have human nature. That's, we're going to get angry. And the beautiful thing is that the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not be angry, because none of us could ever do that. We will be angry. And here you have him, you know, Paul saying, you know, be angry, you're gonna get angry, but anger should never be an excuse for sin. It should never be that well, I said that because I was angry and I hurt somebody, and well, no, it's never an excuse for doing something wrong. But then he says, You're gonna be angry, but then he and he gives us this word picture. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And his point is this, okay, you're going to be angry, but carry it as short of time as possible. You're going to feel anger from time to time, and that's okay. It can't be an excuse for sin. But for it not to become a cause for sin, deal with it as soon as you can. The one application that some some of you may have heard, especially in marriage, you you know, I remember being told, you know, don't go to bed angry. So if you're angry with your spouse, deal with it before you go to bed. Good advice. Great advice. I thought it was great advice, and then I got married, and then I realized it doesn't always work. You know? you know, there are times that we might be awake for three or four days if we did it that way. It's kind of like eventually you got to sleep. And so the fact is, is that we're trying to deal with it, and we try to, but I can't tell you that every conflict that we've ever had, we've dealt with in a 24-hour period. But I can say that we've been committed to deal with it as quickly as possible. And that's what I think he's saying. Solve it as quick as you can. Now, Verse 27 shows us why it's so important. Don't let the sun go down in your anger and and give no opportunity to the devil. And one of the things that's really interesting here is the word for devil that is translated here literally is the word accuser. And so don't give an opportunity to the accuser. In a context, they know that specifically that accuser is Satan. Here's what I want you to realize what is he saying? What happens when we get angry? What happens is that we have that anger, if we don't resolve it, suddenly Satan comes and he puts his hooks into our heart, and that it gives a stronghold, it gives, in a sense, a, 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 a door that Satan is able to work within our heart, and next thing you know, what we're doing is that we are doing the work of the devil, and specifically, how are we doing that? Words of accusa- accusation. We're the accuser Satan is the accuser, and what happens when we get angry we suddenly start accusing other people we start blaming, we start speaking through our words. literally what happens is the voice of Satan is speaking through us through, through, through our anger we've given Satan an inroads into our hearts so that we end up doing his work through our anger now that's really when we see that that's really hard now I don't want to give Satan this place that he can shut up shop and send somebody to manipulate me and But that's what we do. And the fact of the matter is all of us can see at times that this has happened. Have there been times that you've been angry with somebody? Something happened, you know, simple. Something happened at work. You come back. You didn't deal with it. You're mad. Next thing you know, you're yelling at your wife. You're yelling at your kids. You're kicking the dog. And what's happened? I've got this anger that isn't resolved, and it's spilling out. Or it can be a longer thing. The fact is I've got an issue with my wife. I don't resolve it. Next thing you know, it's not just that one issue. Suddenly, I've got lots of issues that are coming out because I'm giving Satan a foothold that he's using to manipulate my heart. And specifically, he's doing it in our our words. And here's what we realize: We all deal with anger. And God knows we deal with anger. And one of the things is that we tend to hide it. Again, part of the problem is that a lot of my anger, I've lived with a long period of time. So I kind of bury it. I don't really think about it. I don't think it's that big of a deal. And, And so I kind of deal with it. I live with it. And, and God knows that. So let's go back to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. And he said, okay, how do you then know if we have this tendency to hide our anger, to minimize it, and God says it's really a big deal, then how do we even know if it's there? Let's look at what Jesus said. How, how is this murderous heart revealed? How is the anger in our heart revealed? Look at what Jesus said. He goes straight from speaking about our anger to our words. Because Jesus, knowing the human heart very well, New A, our tendency to downplay our anger, to deny it, to not make a big deal. So when he brings up the, core, the issue of anger, he says, okay, and now I'm going to talk about your words, because when you have a problem with anger, it reveals itself in your words. And this is where it gets convicting. Look at verse 21 again. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. That's the hard attitude anger. How do we know we have it? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. How do we know we have it? Because it's always revealed in our words. Our anger is revealed in our words. And when we have words that are biting and that are critical or that that attack other people, that are expressed with anger, that always is revealing something that is in our heart, that isn't revealed, that, that, that isn't exposed, that we want to hide. See, we like to think that our words aren't a big deal. We like to even justify and hide. I've shared before that, you know, that I struggled with this in the past, of really becoming very critical towards my wife, and, and I hid that. I made a sarc- sarcasm, and then she'd be upset, and then I'd criticize her for not having a sense of humor. And the fact is that there was something wrong in my heart that I was trying to hide, but the fact of the matter is is that there was something deeply broken, and God was trying to dig at my heart and saying, you can't hide this. This is exposing a real problem. Look what Jesus says about this in Matthew 12, where he makes it really, really clear. Either make a good a tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brought a vipers. How can you uh, uh, speak good when you, when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here's the principle. You have a tree. And how do you know what kind of tree it is? If you have a tree, how do you know if it's an apple tree and an orange tree? How do you know if it's, you know, you, you look at the fruit. And the fact of the matter is, an, you know, an apple tree, if you have apples, it always means there's an apple tree. The fruit always tells the truth. And so he says the same with us. The good person out of his good tr- good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The treasure is our heart. The treasure is what we're thinking And so he continues, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. Now that's really hard hitting. That's really convicting. That almost seems wrong. You tell me God's listening. He's taking notes and everything that I'm doing. And if I carelessly say something wrong, God's going to judge me on it. That doesn't seem fair, does it? You know what it's saying? That's not what it's saying. You know what it's saying is it's saying when your words, by your words you'll be justified, by your words will be condemned. It's not that your words will condemn you. Your words will testify to your condemnation. Your words will testify to your justification. Your words will be the thing that will testify the true nature of your heart. And so what happens when we have the careless word, when it, my, my you know, guard is down and I say something, and how often do we see somebody in you know, public and they say something really stupid, and then oh, I didn't mean that, I didn't realize my guard was down, And that's not the real me. It is the real you. That's the whole idea, is when your guard is down, you're not putting up defenses, you don't have a filter, and suddenly the real you slips out. That's who you are. And that's what Jesus is saying, is that we've got to look at it and say, what are the things that, when somebody pushes our buttons, what are the things that happen when somebody cuts you off? What is the thing that happens when you see that person that you just have something against? What comes out first? That's the real you. By your words, they're you're, you're going to justify you to say, yeah, your heart's right. Or they're going to testify to condemn you and say, no, there's something wrong in your heart. There's something wrong. Because words always tell the truth. They always reveal something about who we are. And it's not only that they reveal that there's something broken, but there's something even powerful in our words that we don't want to always admit. There's a, there's a violence. There's a destructive power. Look at again at Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 22, I say to everyone who is angry with his brother, who will be liable to, the, uh, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now he's gone from murder to talking about these things. Why is that? because when we engage in belittling speech, what are we doing? We're murdering somebody's reputation. We're attacking them. We're harming them. And what Jesus is saying is there's a sense that there's more than one way to murder someone. There's more than one way to kill something about him. See, we might live in the nice neighborhoods and work with nice people and kind of speak, and hey, we're not it, We're not. We're not doing it. We're nothing like that. We wouldn't think of lifting a knife or thinking of lifting a gun and but Jesus said, no, when you use your words, you're destroying people in the same way. And, and this unresolved anger comes apart, and it expresses itself in hateful words towards another people, that we literally, again, going back to what, Jesus, or what Paul says in, in Ephesians 4, we're literally now speaking the words of Satan, doing his work of destroying, of harming the other person. Well, we can take another person's life, or, or we can, through our words, we kill the reputation." We attack them and we kill their sense of self-worth and their, their sense of identity. And the fact is, do you see how those things are related? Jesus is saying, this is serious stuff. And the hard part is we all struggle with it. There isn't any of us that can say when you dig deep, it's like at first you think, okay, don't murder, man, I'm good on this one, I'm, you know, we can walk out, let's go to the next one. And suddenly you realize, hey, there, there isn't any of us that don't struggle to some degree with issues of anger. There isn't an, any of us that in, when our guards are down, we aren't saying things that we regret. We don't want anybody to hear. And I don't want to believe that it reveals part of who I am. And so if it's that deep, how do we fix it? And you know, how do we have a murderous heart? How can it be restored? Look at what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, go to verse 23. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What do we need to do? We need to recognize that this is a big issue and we need to seek to resolve it. We need to seek forgiveness. We need to seek restoration. As it says in Romans, as much as possible, as far as it depends on me, I want to do what I can do to fix it. And how important is it? He's saying, if you're in the middle of the worship service, stop in the middle of the worship service and go do it right now. So, so practically for us, if you have, somebody that you, have some, you know, somebody that you know you have something against, hey, before you leave today, go and try to talk to them. Deal with it today. It's, you know, deal with it as soon as possible. Paul tells us in Ephesians, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, or every form of malice. Basically, get rid of it. Don't make excuses. The problem is, that, again, it's not a big deal. I've kind of forgiven him. And the thing is, we've got to realize that it's not a little problem. It's cancer. And if you have cancer, you don't go to the doctor and say, well, you've got this cancer. Well, how do I manage it? You know, I don't really want to go through the pain of the operation. I just, you know, how do I, if you try to manage it, you're saying if you're going to let it grow and you're going to let it consume you. And my friends, we've got to see this as a cancer. See, it's, it's, you know, when it comes to cancer, it's how do I get it out? How do I get rid of it? And if this is a cancer of our heart that we can't defend it, we can't say, well, you don't understand, you don't know what they did. And, You know, we've just got to say, no, God, help me deal with it. Help me deal with it. God, I I need to deal with it. And even for some of us, it's, man, that's a miracle. I can't do it. What did we sing just a while ago? Dry bones rattling. God's got another miracle here today. You know, that miracle might be saying, okay, God, help me forgive that person that I've been holding on to that resentment for years or decades. That's the kind of miracle that God wants to do. And that's kind of miracle that many of us need. The kind of miracle that a, a Cory ten boom sitting there says, how can I forgive this person? How can we do it? Ultimately, the way that we do it is recognize that we are forgiven. Our ability to forgive others comes directly from our experience of God's forgiveness of us. How do you do it? If you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you're trying to do it on your own, you can only go so far. Ultimately, the answer is to recognize that all of us have sinned against God. All of us deserve God's wrath. There's nothing that we could do to fix that. But God forgave us, and he forgave us not just by feeling it, but by literally paying the price of his life. That's why it says in Ephesians, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, forgiveness is the only thing that has the power to break anger. Forgiveness is the only thing that has the power to heal the deep wounds in our heart. And that forgiveness comes ultimately, not by our own strength or trying, but recognizing, God, I don't have the ability to do it. You forgave me. Now give me the ability to forgive. Again, that's what Corey Ten Boom learned. She's standing there speaking about forgiveness, and suddenly, this guard is in front of her. And she said, I stood there. I, who sins every day, had to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he now erase her slow and terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there with his hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I struggled with doing the most difficult thing I ever had to do. And I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives had a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. Jesus said, if you forgive men their trespass, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Yet I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. So I cried out, Jesus, help me. I prayed and I lift up my hand. I can do that much. And so, woodenly, I reached out to him. And at that moment, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, and it raced through my arm, spreading into our joint, joint hands. And then this healing warmth began to flood over my entire being, bringing tears to my eyes. And I cried out with sincerity, I forgive you, brother. I forgive you with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner. And I knew and experienced God's love and a depth at that moment that I'd had never had before. My friends, that's what God calls us to. That's a miracle. That's a miracle that's, Dry bones rattling. It's a miracle bringing life out of where there's death. God is still working miracles. And for some of us, again, it may be the miracle that he needs to work today. And I hope and pray that if God's bringing somebody to your mind, don't let the day go. As much as it is possible, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Let God do that miracle of healing. Even if you don't feel it, say, God, give me that ability. And where do you find the strength? In remembering how you have been forgiven by His grace.